We are going to change this segment from Science in the News to Cat Fact of the Week. I think the domestic cat is your spirit animal. I have to say, having a real job is great. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Two years ago, we spoke with seven postdocs about what they loved and loathed about this career stage. Where are they now? We found out. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 80. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. 80 episodes, Dan. I was going to say, did you wow. say 80? <laughs> yeah, that just hit me when I said that. Uh, we don't have anything in the notes, but you know how like anniversaries, there's the 50th is the is that gold or... 80, I don't think a lot 80, of people achieve. Yeah, that's a lot. Does 80 have a thing? It's got to be... I'm looking that up. Hang plutonium. On. 80th anniversary gift. <laughs> that popped right up. That is not a real gift. Oh, here we go, Dan. Enriched uranium gift. The, the traditional anniversary gift for 80th is oak. Happy oak episode, Dan. Thanks, Josh. I feel very honored to still be here. I feel like we should be sampling an ethanol that was aged in oak. Did you get us one? I didn't, but that's not to say I'm disappointed. I am actually beside myself with excitement over the beer tonight. You are very excited, and I, I'm excited to find out why you're so excited. Yeah, so this is a beer I was introduced to based on a recommendation from my favorite beer store last week. I had this beer, and I had some friends over, Dan. You might know that I do a weekly board game night. I do know that. You invite me every single week. Yeah, how many times have you attended? Zero times. Yep, I hang on to hope every but, week. But maybe this week, Josh. Maybe, Who knows? Probably it's a good not. week. Probably not. But anyway, because I'm such a good friend, I let one of the the board game members drink the last of these beers thinking, well, I'll just go get some more before the show. I went yesterday to the beer store, totally sold out. I called a second beer store, totally sold out. So I'm starting to panic today. So the third beer store I called, they had one six pack left. So I asked them to put it aside for me. I left work at about two o'clock today to go pick up the six pack a little warm because the guy was sitting on it or what <laughs> well so once i was there i actually ended up having a pint of oktoberfest uh, at about 2 30 today and then went back to work is there that okay that's not a problem I, it's not a problem for me it's not my job but the good news is i acquired this beer i think this might be my favorite beer now have you introduced it you've said what it is all right i know i'm building suspense but this is from clown shoes brewing in ipswich Massachusetts. That is a bizarre name for a brewery. Yeah, well, you're going to love this, Dan. This is called the Baked Goods Hoppy Pale Ale. Okay, I'm going give it, to give it a try. This is 5.5% ABV, Dan. What do you think? Um, it is a very, very tasty beer. It's a it's a very full mouthfeel. It's got a little bit of hop at the back, but it's not the kind that uh, if you drink it, you're going to say, this is soapy. I hate this. I, I think it's a, it's very approachable for people who maybe don't drink a lot of IPAs or pale ales. I totally agree. And I think I've said this on the show before, but I really like a session pale ale where the alcohol level is a little bit lower. But I feel like a lot of times the session beers, they're either too light or they just have a bitter character. They don't have a good body to them. And to me, the balance on this beer is absolutely perfect. It has a full, as you mentioned, a full mouthfeel, uh, a lot of flavor, but not over the top. It's I'm, I'm starting to get a, a profile for you, though, because this reminds me of 
the what was the one from Cigar City Brewing that you really love? The Highlight. The Highlight. Yeah, these have true. similar profiles to me. Yeah, and I'll tell you, there's one minor issue I have with the Highlight. It's the alcohol content. It's a seven and a half percent beer, and I don't know, Dan. These higher, these higher gravity beers, they don't always agree with me. But I love the flavor of the Highlight, and to me, this one matches the flavor and the body. But at a five and a half percent. The trouble, though, is you're telling me that that this uh, what is it called? Baked goods, hoppy pale ale is yep. harder to find. The high line now has wide distribution. You could go pick it up tomorrow. It does, but you know this is a Massachusetts You don't have to beer. bribe a guy down at the local store to save you a six. Pack. I found it in North Carolina. I don't know what the distribution is nationwide, but I'm telling you out there, hello PhD listeners. Ask your favorite beer store for the clown shoes, baked goods, hoppy pale ale. You will not be disappointed. I'm, this is a quality beer. I'm still not a fan of the brewery name. I keep feeling like I'm going to detect the flavor of clown shoes in my beer, but, <laughs> but good beer. Thankfully, that has not happened. We've really been on an IPA kick lately. I noticed we have, I think it's an unbroken string of IPAs over the whole summer. So we're going to go ahead and do what we did in the spring and fall. Then we're going to have an IPA free fall. An IPA free fall that's right so for the next season for the next three months no ipas on the show we're going to branch out i'd like to announce my resignation from <laughs> hello phd effective immediately i think you made the same joke last summer when and I, we did. I came back didn't i <laughs> you did so you know the fall season lots of good options Oktoberfest, pumpkin beers christmas cookie ales i'm accepting applications <laughs> for the new co-host of the hello phd podcast dan we got a new patreon supporter this week Oh, I love Patreon supporters. Well, who'd we get? Uh, I wanted to thank Ryan for his support. So, Ryan, Ryan, thank you so much. Also, I want to acknowledge some ongoing support from a couple of our Patreon supporters, Arlen and Paul. We are raising a glass to you. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hellophd, or you can click the Become a Patron button on our website. Hey, Josh, we have a special bonus for our Patreon subscribers this week. We had such great feedback on episode 79 an insider's guide to industry with Randall Roboto. We actually have his full unedited interview where he talks a lot about his career path, uh, how his network helped him to, to get the job he got, what happens when you lose your job in industry, some things that I think people typically have concerns about when they are looking at an industry career. So that full interview is going to be available on patreon.com for our subscribers. Yeah, we talked to Randy for a long time, and there was a lot of good stuff, but we had to cut it down in the interest of time. So definitely cool stuff. Glad we can share it. All right, Dan, ready for some science in the news? Hit me with the news. Cat fact number 25. Female cats are typically right-pawed, while male cats are typically left-pawed. Okay, I'm going to back you up right there. What were cat facts 1 through 24, or did I, did I miss something? Was I out a few weeks? Well... In my in my office among my my coworkers, we started a Slack channel uh, about I guess two months ago. Are you familiar with Slack? Yeah, I'm a big Slack fan. Yeah, and so uh, one of the things we we installed, I guess, a plugin is random cat facts. So on our random channel, uh, we get a random cat fact every two or three days. Okay, female cats are right pod while male cats are left pod. 
in what activities? In throwing a football, in cutting with scissors, in using a fork and knife? What are we talking about here? I have taken it upon myself in the office to be the cat fact checker. Yeah, how does someone determine this? What I found in a very quick Google search is there is peer-reviewed research that I found on PubMed about this very topic, and this is based on real research. I was hoping that you would actually make this into something about science. Uh, I don't know that this is in the news anywhere, except maybe Cat Fancier Magazine. Well, this was published in the journal Animal Behavior back in 2009. This is some work out of Queens University in Belfast. You have to read the title of this article. Yeah, so the title of this article is Lateralized Behavior in the Domestic Cat. And you have to read the rest because this is the part I care about. Felis Silvestris Catus. The cat is called Sylvestris, like Sylvester the cat. But that must be why they named him Sylvester, right? That's Not incredible. the other way around. See, I'm telling you, word Pretty crazy. etymologies will blow your mind when you find out things like this. Warner Brothers, man, they knew their biology. Canaries are Tweedius <laughs> Burdicus. Well, let me tell you about the study, Dan. So what these researchers did, and again, I keep finding all this research that was so much cooler than my research. All right, so what they did was they took 42 domestic cats and they observed them doing three different tasks to determine if they performed asymmetrical motor behavior, or in other words, if they gave preference to their right front paw or their left front paw, which would be like right-handed, left-handed for us. Did it describe what the tasks were? I have to know. It sure did. So task one was the most complex exercise that involved retrieval of a food treat from an empty jar. Okay, so you put a treat in the jar. They, everybody's seen a cat also, do this. They put the paw in and do the, the kind of grabby thing. The most complex, but also the darn cutest. It's pretty adorable. All right, so task two was an exercise involving reaching for a toy suspended overhead. And task number three was a challenge involving reaching for a toy that was moving along the ground. They didn't do the classic bat your owner in the face when you want them to wake up and get you food task. Uh, my cat usually just uh, just sits on my chest and stares directly into my face. Breathes on you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, actually, another cat fact I found uh, was last week's, which is the cat nose. Every cat has a unique pattern on its nose, similar to a human fingerprint. I'm going to disable cat facts on your Slack channel. <laughs> We're going to change this segment from Science in the News to Cat Fact of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm looking for replacements as co-host. But here, here's what was cool about, about their findings. Not only did they observe this lateralized behavior or certain cats favoring a left paw versus right paw, but this, this favoring of one side or the other was strongly related to the gender of the cat. So male cats showed a much stronger preference for their left paw, and females showed a much greater preference for their right paw. These findings overall suggest that there are two distinct populations of paw preference that cluster strongly around the animal's sex. Um, you are going to tell the story about how you have a cat called Mr. Sophie, right? Because maybe this test could have saved you from that mistake. That's a good point. Uh, so my wife and I, soon after getting married, we got a kitten, and the it was a beautiful a beautiful little kitten named Sophie that we got from the pound. Sophie was super cute. I mean, you have to remember little fur ball. It was right when we started grad school, and I guess it was probably a month after we got Sophie. We had a friend over, had Sophie on on her belly, was rubbing her, and discovered there were little boy parts. There was some extra there. So the veterinarian a 
made a mistake mm-hmm. on the anatomical discovery portion. But but if they had a jar and a food treat, we could have solved this problem. We could have solved it. So anyway, we'd been calling this cat Sophie for about a month, and we really racked our brains to try to think of a, a new name, and we settled on Mr. Sophie. And so Mr. Sophie exists to this very day. Revolutionary. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I thought this was, I did a little bit of research on my own to add some data to their study. I found a video of my other cat, I have two cats, uh, Nutmeg, who's a female. I found some old cell phone video footage of Nutmeg as a kitten chasing a ball and totally favored the right paw. Oh, really? Yeah. And, well, I wanted to check this out for Mr. Sophie, but he's so old now. I so yeah, I tried shaking one of those little feather wands at Mr. Sophie, but he just stared at me looking annoyed. So He, he looks at you with the same, you're ridiculous look that I give you every week. <laughs> wow, actually, I never thought about yeah. that, but yeah. that is totally we, we true. We do have that in common. We I think the that. domestic cat is your spirit animal. <laughs> that could be it. So anyway, I would love it if our listeners would, uh, our listeners who own felines would go ahead and stick a piece of food in a jar or bring the laser pointer out and see if their cat favors right or left based on their gender we need a twitter poll or something we should maybe we'll do, we'll do that uh, but anyway if you're interested in reading the primary research article we will post a link on the show notes thank you for that air quotes science josh <laughs> <laughs> all right dan are you ready to move on to our topic let's do it all right dan last week was postdoc appreciation week we appreciate you, postdocs. Or as I believe I mistakenly called it uh, previously, Postdoc Awareness Week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We are aware of you, postdocs. doesn't have the same ring. Although, ironically, I did mention... I see you over there. Well, I did mention Postdoc Appreciation Week to a couple postdocs last week, and neither of them were aware that... They that gave you the thing. same look that I give you, and <laughs> exactly. the cat gives you... Yeah. Wow, I get that a lot, really. <laughs> I'm starting to get a complex. Uh, so anyway, we were brainstorming doing something special for the postdocs in honor of postdoc appreciation week. And we recalled that on a past postdoc appreciation week, we interviewed eight postdocs just to get a little bit of an idea of what it's like to be a postdoc these days. And in my mind, I remember we had that conversation, Dan, I said, Oh, well, it'd be neat to find out what they've been doing since last year. We looked up the episode and realized it actually was two years ago when we spoke to these postdocs. Yeah, it's been long enough that some of them have had the chance to change careers or to to maybe stay where they are. And I was really curious to know what happened. Yeah, so what we did is we went out and connected with seven of these postdocs that we talked to two years ago to find out what the heck they're up to now uh, since we talked to them two years ago when they were postdocs. And if you'd like to go back and hear those original interviews with the postdocs, that's from episode 13, Postdoc Straight Talk. And we ended up breaking that theme into two different episodes. So episode 13 was the were the actual interviews with the postdocs. And then episode 14, Dan and I reflected on some of the themes that that came out. Really would encourage you, if you haven't heard those yet, or if it's been a while, go listen to those original interviews back on episode 13, and then bring this one back up and listen to where they are now. And as a little bit of a spoiler, at least a preview, six of the seven have transitioned from being a postdoc, and they're in a wide range of interesting careers. One of them lives in a cabinet under the stairs. <laughs> one's at Starbucks, one's at Caribou. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and talk to the postdocs and hear what they've been up to. 
Kate Robbins, and I am the Design Code Build Program Coordinator at the Computer History Museum. Cool. Tell me a little bit more about what, what that entails. Yeah, so it is a program that was established by the museum um, about three years ago, back in 2014, and it's a program for middle school students. So the purpose of the program is to get students kind of involved and excited about um, different STEAM learning opportunities. And we do this through the lens of computer science and computer history. And so students are in middle school, so grades six through eight, and we bring them in. It's a day-long program, and they get to do a lot of hands-on activities um, where they focus on concepts of critical thinking, creativity, and collaboration. Um, And they get to do this with really fun, interactive activities. They get to work with Raspberry Pi, which is a really cool, small computer. And they just really get the opportunity to learn with and from each other. So it's it's a really great opportunity for middle school students to start thinking about different careers and options in the STEM field. That's really cool. And if I recall, you had an interest in science outreach and education as a as a postdoc. So this is a good fit for you, it seems like. Oh yeah. It's been great. It's funny because it's so it's so far from what I did in my postdoc content wise, but you know, the idea of sharing the impact of STEAM in general, it's really cool to kind of get students excited about it because a lot of times, especially with the populations of students that I've been working with, they don't think that technology is something that's for them, but, or any of those other fields either. And once they're in this program, they realize that, you know, all these areas overlap so much and they are more than capable of taking on any of these areas. No, that's super cool. So why don't you yeah. tell me, why don't you tell me briefly just what the last two years have been like for you? Because last time we we talked and we interviewed you for the show, you were a postdoc and you were in the middle of that situation. So just kind of briefly walk me through how you went from there two years ago to where you are now. It's been an interesting two years, that's for sure. Um, So I left um, my postdoc at UNC uh, close to the time um, that we did the initial podcast, so about two years ago. Um, My now husband had gotten a job out basically in the Silicon Valley area in California. Um, So we moved out here, and I started looking for jobs based off of my interest and my desire to really work with students um, and do something that was related to the STEAM fields. Um, I knew that doing bench work was not something that I wanted to continue pursuing. And so my first few months out in California was spent looking and applying at different jobs in different fields and venues. Um, And I wound up getting two part-time positions that summer. One was here at the Computer History Museum, um, working as an instructor for the Design Code Build Program. And the other position was as an instructor for a, a summer camp. And so with that one, I got to teach um, elementary through middle school students in science. Both experiences were really fun. Um, I enjoyed them a lot. And Lucky for me, around that time, the Computer History Museum was looking for someone to take over 
leading the design code build program, which I was initially hired for as an instructor. And um, I had been working part-time on the back end of things for the program as well. And they asked me to come on board full-time and I jumped at the opportunity and have been officially full-time staff at the museum for almost a year. I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary in just a couple weeks now. I guess, how how does what you do now, I mean, you mentioned it's very different, obviously, than being a postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> um, but how is now having having this job, having this career, what are the big ways that it differs from being a, a postdoc and being a, a trainee in general? My time is spent much differently during the day. So instead of being at a bench all the time and doing lab work, um, I'm typically either at my computer, you know, corresponding via email or phone calls with different people or preparing for the programs that I run. The emphasis of what I do now is teaching, um, where it was more so of the focusing on the actual science when I was um, doing my postdoc. What would you say um, is better or worse, being a postdoc or, or your current job? Which do you like better? Oh, well, for me... I actually love my current job. I don't think I necessarily realized how much I liked working with people, um, but it turns out that that is one of the things that I love the most about my current job is that I get to interact with so many different people on a regular basis. A big part of what I do is outreach to the surrounding communities, and so I get to work with a lot of teachers, a lot of community organizations, and it is one of the things that I love the most. And I feel like I've met so many interesting people and developed so many great relationships. And that, along with working with the students themselves, have been just the biggest highlight of the past year. And so I've definitely found what my true passion is. (laughs) You know, it is hard when you're training, um, whether it's in grad school or your postdoc. And you kind of get lost in the everyday grind and it can be hard. So to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you actually can follow what you want to do is really great. Yes. So my name is uh, Eric Weening and I used to be a postdoc at UNC and currently for almost two years now, I've been a a contractor uh, working at uh, the CDC in Atlanta. Uh, Mainly what I do is I work in, in Parsi in the lab, but I also manage a team of three people um, on day-to-day basis. What has the last two years been like for you professionally? It's been a, it, it's definitely been a big change. You're going from postdoc. Uh, I was postdoc research associate back at UNC, and now being in a uh, like a real job. I mean, you know, I think there's a very big difference between being a postdoc and what I right now do is working as a contractor for the federal government. Um, just the day-to-day is even different. Yes, it's still science, but, you know, you have to deal with more, like, policy, uh, different uh, quality assurances, for example, in academia. You know, you have, I think, more freedom on designing your experiments as you want. Now working in the federal government for specific assays, you are much more rigorously uh, tied down for good reason, you know, that experiments has to be performed in such a manner because, you know, your product goes out to a completely different audience. So it's been a very big difference and change from academia as postdoc to, 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 to government. What, which was better, being a trainee, being a postdoc or grad student or, or having your real job? Well, the salary in the real job is, is nicer. I will fairly admit that. 
Uh, I think uh, sometimes looking back on it, a lot of times when we all look back at sometimes at, at times where we thought this was some was really rough and hard, there actually were really good aspects of it. As a postdoc, you had actually a lot of freedom in in the in the terms of, you know, you weren't a student anymore. You didn't have to do classes and things like that, and you had a PI who brought in the money. So you were actually really being able to focus on. I think what I really enjoyed doing was science, but. That being said, now having a, a real job, what I do like more is that I feel more that the work I do has a bigger impact on, 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 on life in general in terms of for the American population or anything like that. So I think it gives a little bit more of a rewarding factor. But I think just if I give any advice to postdoc, you know, please appreciate the time you have in the lab. It might sound really rough or anything you have right now, but, you know, every job has its own struggles. Access as a postdoc, it is pretty nice. My name is, is Fernando Estrada, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry, uh, University at Buffalo. So there's been a lot to happen in the last uh, couple of years, and so I, I shortly after we spoke, I think I I entered the the job market officially and and went through that entire process. It's kind of a long process, um, and then finally, you know, found the place that I felt where I was a good fit where the personality of the, of the department kind of matched my personality and where I thought felt I could have, you know, the right kinds of collaborations for the kind of research that I do. Um, and it just, it was kind of a good mutual fit. And then, you know, my wife and I visited here uh, in Buffalo and we would never, we'd never been here. I'd never really visited or, or really, to be honest, given much thought to the city. But once we visited, it's, it's a really nice area. It's, you know, the cost of living is pretty reasonable. There's, you know, resources here for research and uh, good schools. And so we, you know, we decided to to make the jump. See, the first year has been kind of a whirlwind because you have to spend all this time recruiting people and into your lab and and uh, purchasing equipment and setting up equipment and starting to kind of crank the wheel on even little even little things in the in the laboratory. You know, techniques that are our commonplace in, a, in an established research laboratory become, you know, <laughs> somewhat of an, of, an, of an adventure when you're setting up a laboratory because you'll go to do some simple protocol and you realize that you're missing some fundamental tool that you're just, you're used to taking for granted. And now you, you realize that, well, we don't have a Bunsen burner. We actually have to purchase one or, you know, stuff like that. But it's been a lot of fun. So remind me, so was your goal as a postdoc to get an academic faculty position? Yeah, so that's been my goal for um, for quite some time. I'd say since maybe after you know my first year as a postdoc, I think is when I finally decided to put all my chips in that in that basket. I've been very fortunate. Just the environment that I was in um, was really encouraging, and I had plenty of opportunities to to kind of explore different options uh, career-wise. But um, yeah, it's uh, I've been in this on this path for a little while now. How is being a faculty member different than being a postdoc or trainee? Well, you're, I mean, your lane is just, is just bigger. So now, you know, I have not just my project, cause I still spend time on the bench, you know, my projects that I have in hand, but I'm, I'm starting to distribute those to other, other people and then training people one-on-one myself. Um, only recently, I'd say in the last month or so, I've gotten to the point where I have people training other people. You know, or I'm I'm kind of I'm no longer directly involved, and that's a little bit um, that's kind of a big jumping off point. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine bit. imagine that direction will continue as you go on in your career. 
It will. It will. It's just a little bit scary because, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's the first, I mean, I, I love bench work and it's the first indicator that you're, that, you know, you're, you're going to start to pull away from that maybe one step at a time, but I'm going to try to hold on to my spot on the bench for as long as I, as long as I can. Which is better being a trainee or, or having this, this real job, if you will, this, this faculty job, which one do you like more? Well, I think I'm having more fun now than when I was a trainee because I'm really kind of more at liberty to kind of choose, you know, different directions. Even when I was a trainee, you know, when I was under a particular um, funding award, I still kind of had to stay within that lane of that award for the research that I was doing. And now because I have, I mean, you have access to seed money in the form of of startup funds, you really kind of have some degree of freedom to explore other ideas. And so it kind of opens up different things that you maybe you've been curious about previously and, and then you kind of set aside, put it on the back burner. But now we get to try some things out. And so we had projects in the first, I don't know, six months of the lab that we, we you know, things that I've been wanting to try for some time, but I was never, you know, funded to do just that thing. Um, and sometimes those things work out and sometimes they, they don't. But you won't know until you actually try it. So that degree of freedom, I think, is is uh, like nothing I've ever had before. I am Sonia Hall, and I am the Director of Engagement and Development for the Genetic Society of America. I left the traditional vet lab bench, I guess it was 14 months ago now. Um, And I took a position in the Center for Biomedical Career Development at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. I'm working with Cynthia Furman. What I was fortunate to do there was to work on one of the NIH best grants, um, which was awarded to UMass Med, um, to make career and professional development training an integral part of the graduate training experience at that institution. So I got exposed to a lot of um, a lot of the challenges that are faced within academia, not just for those that are at the bench, but also on the administrative side of things, did some teaching and curriculum design and things like that as well, and then also looked at a lot of evaluation data. You know, that kind of reinforced my passion for advocating for early career scientists and contributing to the scientific enterprise in what may be viewed as a less traditional way. Um, So when I had an opportunity to take this position with the Genetic Society of America, um, it was a perfect fit. You know, it was it was essentially a position that I had sculpted out and defined by the things that I had done when I was serving in a leadership role there. Yeah, that's really great. You know, that really feeds into one of the things that we preach all the time, that sometimes when when you're thinking about your future career as a trainee, is that some of those other things you do outside of the lab that really end up being the most important experiences for, you know, your future career. Yeah, and I was, I was so much like you, like, I think... One of the things that I kind of found um, strength in when I was, you know, making all of these decisions, because for anybody, right, they are really hard decisions, um, regardless of what your background is, right? They're they're challenging. Um, But I remembered you telling me about how you basically took an inventory of what it was that you enjoyed doing, right, and what brought you the most joy. And so I just kept reinforcing the fact that it was important for me to reflect on those types of things. Um, and knowing that you had done it and you had a really great outcome from it, right? I was like, okay, I can be confident in the fact that this will provide good results. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, it's important that we do those types of things. So do you feel like life is better now with a real job than it was as a postdoc? For me, yeah, definitely. Um, are there things about the postdoc life um, that I miss? I guess that would be, are there parts of the scientific research that I miss? And yes, there definitely are, right? But it's with any position, right? Um, or any town, like when you move a town, right? There's always things that you leave behind that you treasure and that you enjoy. But it doesn't make your present day, I guess, any less fulfilling. My name is Jada Cochino Bud. I'm a postdoc at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. All right. Um, so I have still been working as a postdoc, um, continuing the research that I've been doing, and I'm trying to wrap up now and apply for faculty positions. So I've started the uh, process already and started applying to a little less than a third of the places that I'm applying to. I have, I think, 26 currently on my list. So it's a big endeavor. It's been described to me, and I think that this is pretty accurate. Um, applying for faculty positions is basically like having another full-time job. And I actually just got reviews back for my paper. So now I'm trying to do all the experiments to get that out um, as soon as possible so that I can put accepted on the uh, on the job applications. So it's kind of doing everything all at once and just kind of going at full pace until it's all finished. So how do you, compared to two years ago, if you can, if you can remember mm -hmm. back to the last time we talked, um, you know, you were you were pretty positive about being a postdoc. It sounded like you were in a good, a good situation and a good place then. How do you feel about being a postdoc now compared to two years ago? I guess overall the same, maybe different in different aspects. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I was still a bit in the like right eyed excitement phase, whereas now it's trying to get out has a different feel to it. But um, overall, being a postdoc is good, but it's still that sort of middle ground between anything real and being a student still. So you're just still stuck in that no man's land. But I do see a light at the end of the tunnel at this point, which I think makes it more enjoyable. So my name is Michelle Itano, and I'm now the director of the Microscopy Corps at the Neuroscience Center at UNC. Right around that time, I think I got out my first first author paper as a postdoc, and that allowed me to kind of go on the market. Um, and I started looking at positions, and most of those were um, faculty tenure track positions, but I also considered coming back to UNC as a very high priority for my family and personally, and a position had opened up to direct a microscopy core in the Department of Pathology. And that was the first time I really considered a um, core facility management position. And one nice thing about UNC is they really um, support those positions in making a faculty track available for them um, and just more stability, I'd say. So once I learned out more about that, I kind of kept that on my radar. And um, although I didn't apply for other positions, um, kind of changed my mindset in what I thought my career path would be. So I arrived here in uh, mid-June and got to get started um, with directing the facility and we had our you know, students coming in and, and all of that new kind of rhythm for the, the larger university mm -hmm. is something that's been started now. How is being in this position as a core director 
different than being a trainee, than being a postdoc or a grad student? I think a lot of it is mindset, right? So um, one of the first things that I noticed that felt so different is I feel the responsibility to be a real personal advocate. I have now a responsibility for the success of the core, and that is very empowering in a way um, because I really can make what I think are the best decisions and justify them to myself first and then you know convince other people but it, it falls mostly to me um, and to adjust as necessary whereas I think as a, a researcher with the project those decisions are more subtle and and you don't tend to make really major ones and you're not really having to um, advocate for yourself in a, in a broader sense it's it, it's um, more just focused on your own research needs and and maybe getting attention from your faculty member but not not thinking kind of more globally and and in this case it's also partially a service um, position and so really thinking about what do other people need thinking as broadly as I can and kind of foreseeing what's coming up how can I support changing needs better um, and to me that's very exciting because I get to focus more on possibilities and think of new technologies and new research types that I might personally not have been able to do but if I can identify several other faculty across campus then that's something that we could support. Mm -hmm. So what, which is better, being a postdoc or, or have, having a real job? I have to say having a real job is great. <laughs> it's um, Being a postdoc, I think the impermanence was really tough. Um, and you have some freedom there. But in this position, I would say I actually have enhanced freedom. Um, and that is something that really feels exciting to come into work each day. My name is Michael Johnson. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Immunobiology at the University of Arizona. I'm also a member of the Bio5 Institute here and a faculty in the Applied Bioscience program. Very cool. So two years ago when we spoke, you were a postdoc at St. Jude's and now you're a faculty member. So why don't you give me the really brief Cliff Notes version of of the last two years for you? <laughs> Whirlwind. <laughs> Just absolutely crazy. Two years ago. Okay, two years ago, I think I was about to get a, an email from Jeff Frelinger saying, we have this job at University of Arizona. I think you're qualified. You should send me your CV. And the weekend after that, uh, the, the the Monday, I got an email from the search committee chair saying, yes, you are qualified. Please send in your packet. And later that week, I had a flight to Arizona <laughs> for an, for like October. Uh, yeah, like things happen lightning fast there. I go, I do the interview. I talk to people. I do the chalk talk and get basically a, an offer on the spot, which I was just like, you know, I had. I, you know, I'll be completely honest. I had to like fake going to the bathroom just so I could like text my wife because I couldn't believe what was happening. Um, also in Arizona, you have to drink a lot of water because it's hot. So it was, it was kind of a dual purpose. It was overwhelming. It was great. And I'm just really grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, it's one of those like definitely hold on to those old contacts because you never know which one will say, hey, I have this job 
you know, that you might be interested in. Yeah, and our, our listeners, so our listeners don't know who Jeff Frelinger is. So what's your connection to Jeff Frelinger? So I was a music major out of Duke and I was trying to, um, I was interested in going into science. And Jeff Frelinger was the guy who gave me my first scientific shot. Um, he was the, you know, I was too naive to know how big of a player he was in the field, you know, as far as being the president of, you know, of the, uh, of the association for immunologists. He was the chair of microbiology immunology at UNC, which was like one of the top 10 programs. You know, I was just completely oblivious to all of this because I was just like, Hey, I want to do science coming from a music background. Um, so he interviewed me and luckily gave me the shot and, you know, I was a technician in his lab for two years before I applied to graduate school at the University of North Carolina, and I got my PhD in um, in biochemistry and biophysics in a different lab. But Jeff was still on my, you know, I put Jeff on my committee because he was just one of those people who knows so much in the field and is just so helpful. So maintaining that connection, years later, he sent me a random email saying, you know, and I had spoken to him throughout the years about various scientific, you know, getting scientific advice or um, asking various questions like, how do you do this? Who should I talk to about this? Um, you know, just maintaining that connection, not necessarily for selfish reasons, just because it was just super helpful. But uh, it ended up still absolutely paying off because, um, you know, he knew of a position open here and I, I got my foot in the door. He, he gave me the opportunity to actually speak about my science here you know so it was you know it was like thank you for getting me in the door and being an advocate for me and in the end it i'm undoubtedly certain that it got me you know that it helped get me this uh, position here now he's my colleague <laughs> but yeah it's it's been it's been crazy it's been a lot of fun and um i i am i, I i'm so glad that i'm a pi right now I, I really really enjoy it i guess i'm still in the the honeymoon phase but um yeah, it's, you know, I just, I actually just got my first grant. Um, I have a paper that uh, is uh, about to be accepted pending minor revisions. Uh, so we finally pleased uh, that famous reviewer, you know. Um, <laughs> reviewer two or yeah. three, whichever one. Yeah, although I, I have to say, you know, to, to their credit, the reviewers for this paper who acts absolutely ran me through the ringer for this paper they were completely justified and there were so, I mean, the paper is like so much better right now than into when I turned it in. It's, it's not even funny. It's not even a contest. So, um, they, they basically said they knew I was a new PI and they basically said, all right, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to help you out here. And they helped me out considerably. And I think it, you know, I didn't feel like that when I, you know, read the review for the first time, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. But you know, and then, you know, you calm down you're like, okay, okay, okay. They, they all have valid points. It's been a whirlwind. My, but yeah, my lab has a, uh, I think nine people, including myself now and just one year. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably makes it fun also. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's intense. It's absolutely intense. Do you feel like, at least from a professional standpoint, is life better now than it was as a postdoc or trainee? Oh, life's definitely better now. Life is so much better now in so many different ways. Um, I have more autonomy now. I have a more financial benefit now um, uh, that can't be ignored. I think we're the department that we're in is a is a very young department, and they have you know there are a lot of people with kids our age, so you know it's a very collegial hangout outside of work kind of, you know, 
department. So on the, you know, on the personal side, on the, you know, the, the, the professional side. Yeah. It's, it's hands down. It's, it's better. It's definitely better. All right, Dan, that was my interview with the postdocs. I feel very encouraged that it sounds like by and large, people are quite happy with their life path, which I didn't expect exactly. Yeah. You know, we, we kind of had this idea like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to revisit these these former postdocs two years later? But I don't know that in that moment I expected so many of them would have not just transitioned into careers in, in just two years, but that so many of them would really be doing these jobs that are completely in line with what they said they wanted to do with their ideal job two years ago. Okay, so so let's put the skeptic hat on. Do we have a sample bias? Did you find these people in some unusual way originally that would make them more likely to get into careers they love? Were they all extroverts who have a ton of great contacts that Yeah, I don't think so. I mean it really was it really was a range of They're all on Twitter? Are they all on Twitter? No, they're not all on Twitter. Um, Do they all listen to this? I know they don't even all listen to this podcast, so we can't say that. Do they all actively avoid it? That might be the key. (laughs) That could be. I also, Dan, was really, really encouraged. And, you know, my thought is I'm hoping that, you know, hearing the experience of these postdocs and and what they've accomplished over the last two years transitioning from their postdoc into these careers might provide some encouragement for some of the trainees out there who are listening that, you know, really – I feel like we say this a lot, but not just it gets better, but you know, there really there really is something good after training. There's a reason you're doing this training besides the training itself that's gonna lead to something that hopefully you're really excited about. Yeah, the coolest thing to me is the wide range of things that they're doing and they're excellent at them. You've got people working with middle schoolers and they're teaching science and technology and arts and math. I think you know You've got people that are, are running a core facility, people that are faculty and trying to start up a lab. It's, it's, you know, we believe, I think you and I believe that the skills you learn in graduate school and in your graduate training as a postdoc are transferable to almost anything in the world. And we say it, but I think they're out there demonstrating it. And that's really cool to me. And Dan, something I thought we could take a minute to talk about and something I've been reflecting on a little bit since doing these interviews earlier this week, and that is... There can be a little bit of this cloud of negativity surrounding science training. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. And we talk about a lot of those reasons here on the show. There are some ways that science training is really stressful. And in some ways, that's inevitable. In other ways, maybe it's more stressful than it needs to be and we could make it better. But I think there also is at least a little bit of this overlying skepticism, at least with regard to the career prospects of being a science trainee. Yeah, the trope is, you know, if you don't want to be a faculty member, then you are in trouble. The only jobs you're trained for are getting a a teaching job at a university with a research lab, and you're overqualified for every industry job. And basically, if you don't get on that tenure track, there's nothing left for you. Yeah, or even if you do want to be on that tenure track, there's so few jobs doing that that there's no way you're going to get one. And it's going to be hell getting there, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And, and beyond that, there's too many scientists. We're training too many people. There aren't enough jobs. You know, these are the messages we hear all the time. I mean, those may be the statistics. I, I, I think there's, there's a broader population statistic question here about whether we are training more scientists than we actually have faculty jobs. I think that's probably true. And yet, 
here you found a group of people and, and many of them found jobs in faculty positions. Yeah, uh, among other things. I think the one thing that did seem to come through is regardless if they were faculty or working in a museum or working with students in a core facility, they all seemed very satisfied with what they were doing and felt like it was a good fit um, with who they are and what they wanted to do. Um, but, you know, I, I've actually seen a lot of conversations and heard a lot of conversations, some some on Twitter, some just among people around the water cooler, I guess, in academia or whatever you want to say. I think one of the reasons why there are these arguments about the science workforce and are we training too many people is there's really not good statistics. We're using a lot of feelings, a lot of anecdotal evidence. And the reality is, I don't know that we have a good idea of the reality. Um, and, and we've talked about that on past shows. Uh, we had a show about where all the postdocs, right? Well, we don't know, right? There's articles about, we don't even know how many postdocs there are. So how do we know what they're doing? So yeah, I don't know, Dan, but but regardless, I felt very encouraged, you know, speaking to to all these really cool individuals doing lots of really cool things. Um, I think they, I think they really did um, affirm something that we say all the time, and that is, it really does get better, right? And that's almost across the board, not just these folks that we talked to this week, but all the people we've talked to on the show who are beyond their training, people we know, our own experience. That training certainly, there's some good things about it, as we've talked about, but certainly life after grad school, life after the postdoc, way better. Totally worth it. Yeah, I can't wait for the four-year and eight-year and whatever number of follow-ups we do to find out how these all progress. And we'll have to find a new group of postdocs to follow because I think the challenges, some of the challenges are going to remain the same over the years. Um, Pay will probably come up as it did in that, that original episode we recorded. But many things will change, and and maybe there there are more opportunities for alternative careers, more air quotes, training, um, internships, other types of postdocs. And I think some of these opportunities are coming along that will change the nature of postdoc training. Absolutely, Dan. I totally agree with that. One, one other quick thing I wanted to mention is I felt like there was a lot of confidence in 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 these people we talked to. And, and I don't know that I necessarily want to say they seemed way more confident now than they did two years ago. But, you know, one thing we've also talked about on the show that, that, that I really can't stand is I feel like individuals, at least when they finish the PhD, around the time a lot of people are entering that postdoc transition, their confidence in their ability and in themselves is at an all-time low. You know, they've accomplished this really amazing thing, and yet they feel very small. You know, lots of imposter syndrome, uncertain of their own abilities, and I think it's also encouraging to see once you get in that career, you really start to build that confidence much more quickly. I don't know if that was true for you, Dan. I know I had a lot of apprehension starting some, a new career outside the lab, but I feel much more confident now than I ever did as a trainee. Right. And finding work that suits your skills and abilities and passions. And I think we heard that in, in several of the interviews, people who either intuitively or through hard work identified the type of activities that made them happy. They noticed the times that they experienced that flow state. They knew that if they applied that later, uh, it would work out as a career. I think that builds confidence. You start to accept, hey, this is just how I'm made. Let me, let me go and do more of this rather than trying to kind of shoehorn myself into this faculty position job. Something that maybe is not a good fit for me, but I feel like I should do it. Yeah. And I think if there's a, a take-home message 
from all this for the current trainees, postdocs or grad students, it really is important to spend some time thinking about who you are, what you want to do, and really go after that. Because if it's what you want to do and it's what your passion is, you will get there. And stick with us. We'll, we'll help you out as much as we can. That's right. All right, Dan, do you have a word puzzle for us this week? Etymology time. The clue last time was an amber or glass rod can be used to demonstrate this force of nature. Oh, man, Dan. Remember your uh, 11th grade physics class, Josh? Uh, you know, I don't know why, but I can't get Jurassic Park out of my head when you say that when you're talking about the amber. I'm just imagining the uh, the mosquito and the... Dinosaur resurrection, <laughs> this force of nature. And I, I know that has nothing to do with this clue, but uh, I can't get past it. What's the answer, The Dan? answer was electricity. Boogie, well, woogie, woogie. Yeah, you can do it. Uh, so this is something that surprised me. I had no idea. I, I've worked in, in energy for the last 10 years, let's say, and electricity specifically for the last five or six. And I never really knew where the word came from or what it meant. I mean, you got the word electron, electricity. It actually comes from the word amber. Um, So originally amber was called electrum. So in the 1600s, somebody discovered that if you rub a piece of amber with a, with a piece of fur or something like that, it will attract other, attract other objects. And so this is how electricity, the notion of static electricity or electricity was first discovered. So anyways, amber electricity. I had no idea. And this is my work. Josh, the winner this time is Paul from the University of Zurich. And uh, he actually knew this answer because of the Philip Pullman books, His Dark Materials. Did you ever read those? I did not. Yeah, they've been recommended to me. I have not yet read the whole thing. So uh, I feel like I need to go back and, and learn from these adolescent... Is that a fantasy book? It's like a... Yeah, it's like an adolescent fantasy book. It was in the same vein and time span as Harry Potter. Um, but I guess it has some word origins in it. Cool. I need a new book to read. All right. So congratulations to Paul, and I will give you the clue for next week. All right, let's hear it. This one is not scientific and very much in the news, so... It's etymology in the news. Etymology in the news is all crossing over, and it's based on cats. No, it's not. Okay, so the clue is, though they don't raise their voices in response, they can still be heard over the music. I'll read it one more time. Though they don't raise their voices in response, they can still be heard over the music. Remember, I'm looking for a word described by the clue. Once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and we'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right. Fantastic, Dan. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. We'll probably read it on the show, and it allegedly helps new listeners discover the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to the website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. All right, Josh. Well, thank you for sharing your new favorite pale ale. And uh, I will shed a tear into this one because it's the last one for a while, I think. Clown shoes, baked goods. Go get you some. We'll see you next time. Hmm, I have a little backstory. I don't know if I should tell it now. Usually I say save it for the show, but this is literally (laughs) the show. So go ahead. Okay. Let me just rant for a second. As many things on the internet 
that are risque or dangerous. The fact that to enter a beer website, I have to enter my birth date. If like I, that's the worst thing kids are going to get onto is like a microbrewery's website. Yeah, 